but you have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which you are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you have respect of persons, you commit sin, and you are convicted of the law as a transgressor. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if you commit no adultery, yet if you kill, you are become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as they that will be judged by the law of liberty. For he will have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs or rejoices over judgment. Now, in our lesson tonight, we're going to discover four different things. First of all, we're going to see the character of the rich, the character of the rich in verses 6 to 7. Then we're going to see the character of the redeemed, the character of the redeemed in verse 8. Then we'll see the character of the rebellious, the character of the rebellious in verses 9 through 11. I hope none of you fall under that one. And then lastly, we're going to see the character of our Redeemer in verses 12 and 13. So you have the character of the rich, verse 6 and 7, the character of the redeemed, verse 8, the character of the rebellious, verse 9 through 11, and then lastly, the character of the Redeemer, verses 12 and 13. So first of all, we're going to look at the character of the rich. They are oppressive and blasphemous. They are oppressive and blasphemous. Notice what James says in verse 6. You have dishonored the poor. You have dishonored him. You have despised him. You have treated him shamefully by telling him to go over there, sit under your footstool. You know, the church members should have recognized, as I said a while ago, that of the two visitors, the poor man was the one who was more likely to embrace the gospel than the rich man. And yet the poor man went away saying, as I said, no thanks. Why would I want Christianity if that is the way that you're going to treat me? I'm not good enough for your religion. And now James is going to remind them that their conduct is very strange in light of how the rich people were treating them. And he tells his readers three things that the rich were doing to the poor. And by the way, before we get into this, James is not saying that all rich people act like this, okay? So if you have, you know, somebody that's rich, they're not all oppressive and they're not all blasphemous. He's not saying all rich people act like this, nor is it likely that the rich that he's referring to here are believers. And we'll see that when we get into chapter five, because he tells them to weep and howl for their miseries that will come upon them. I mean, these rich are unredeemed, and we know that from chapter 5 because uh, James tells them about their judgment that is coming for the way they behaved. So first of all, notice what these rich people were doing. He says, first of all, they oppress you. Do not rich men oppress you? Don't they exercise power over you? In fact, the word oppress is only used one other time in the New Testament. You don't need to turn there, but listen, it's when Peter, remember Peter was preaching to the Gentiles? And he was in the house of Cornelius, and he said this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healed all who were, and here's our word, oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It's interesting, the word oppressed there is used to equate 
or to describe the devil's rule over his victims. That's what James is saying here. The rich oppressors are equated with the devil. They're oppressing them. They're hard. They are devilish. And yet James says, you are granting them first place in your worship service? Ladies, we do the same thing in our churches today. We exalt wealth in the church. We exalt influence. And as a result, the devil has taken place in many of our churches. And I think the, pla- the, pla- the fact that we have put him there is very frightening. Ladies, we need our churches to undergo self-examination in these evil days in which we, ha- in which we live. Even in the house of God, we give the devil first place. It's no wonder when you go around and as Rita saw some of the things that I see when I go that you really don't see any spiritual awakening in people's hearts because we have given the devil first place in our worship. Proverbs twenty two sixteen says this, he who oppresses the poor to increase his riches and he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. Now, notice the second characteristic of the rich oppressors. He said in verse five, in verse six, not only do they oppress you, but they draw you before the judgment seat. Now, this Greek word literally means to drag you into court. Remember, this is a time that James is writing when there were persecuted Christians. Remember, many of them, them had lost their homes. They'd lost their possessions. They had nothing. There was a lot of poor people during this time. And so they had very little as it was. And you know what the rich were doing to them? They would actually go out on the streets. I mean, if some poor guy just owed him like five bucks and you saw some of that in your homework, just a few nothings, the rich would go out and actually grab them by the neck, drag them into court. And James saying, they're not only oppressing you, but they're dragging you into court, dragging you in by your neck. They don't care about you. They don't care that you're being oppressed. They don't care you have nothing. All they care about is their money. You despised that poor man, and yet look how the rich treat you, he says. I don't know, maybe these church members thought that by giving the rich man a prominent seat, you know, maybe he would return the favor and not go out on the street the next day and drag him by the neck. Who knows? I don't know. Well, James says they're not only pressing you and dragging you into court, but they're doing something even worse. Notice verse 7. Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? The word blaspheme here means to slander, to show contempt for God. You know what the rich were doing? They were slandering Christians. They were blaspheming them, not only in the court, but in their daily life. And notice what James says. They blaspheme that noble name or that worthy name by which you are called. They're blaspheming that glorious name, that beautiful name, that attractive name, that good name, the name by which you are called. It's interesting the word called there is a word that was used in New Testament times when a wife would take on, or she'd get married, she'd take on her husband's name. You know, when I got married, I was Pack, P-A-C-K, and then I married my husband and I took on the name of Heck. And when my kids were born, they, what, they took on the name of Heck. That's what this Greek word is, by the name you are called. Because in the New Testament time, when someone would turn away from their sin 
and embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, and they were baptized. You know, from that day on, they were called Christians by the name that they were called. In fact, they were known as Little Christ. And James says they're blaspheming that worthy name by which you are called, that name that you have taken on, Christian. When people slandered Christians, they were slandering Christ, weren't they? In fact, Jesus said, "In as much as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. In fact, it was their identification with Christ that caused the slander and the rebuke. Well, James is rebuking his readers because they're showing favoritism to the very enemies of the Lord. How could they let that happen? How could they participate in that? Well, James has a word of encouragement for some of them in verse 8 before he challenges them again in verse 9. And here we see in verse 8 the character of the redeemed. The character of the redeemed. And that is this. They are loving to others in need. They are loving to others in need. Notice what he says. If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. It's interesting the word if suggests that James considered the possibility that not all of the church members were showing partiality. You know, we know that the speaker was because the one James is writing to, he's rebuking him, but we can't take from that that everyone in the congregation was showing partiality. And so James says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you do well. Indeed, if that is your truly your true motive, then I have no objection, he says. If you really fulfill the royal law, if you really carry it out, you might say, well, what was the royal law? Well, royal means kingly or supreme. And James says, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, which makes me ask, what scripture is he talking about? Where is this royal law mentioned? Where is this kingly law mentioned? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn back to Leviticus 19.18. I use this scripture a lot in counseling when I'm trying, and I use it a lot with women who won't confront their husbands. I hope none of you are like that, but Leviticus 19.18 is a great passage. Um, it is the royal law. Listen to it. Leviticus 19.18. Well, let's start. Let's start in verse 16. That, the royal law is in verse 18, but we'll start in verse 16. You shall not go up and down as a talebearer among your people. Neither shall you stand against the blood of your neighbor. I'm the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not allow sin upon him. That's where I talk to women about, you know, when you have resentment and bitter bitterness, and this is not just towards your husband, towards anyone. You know when you have that hatred in your heart? And don't look at me so piously. You do, you know. Somebody was telling me this week, and, you know, I hate my husband. I said, well, hey, you know, sometimes we love him, sometimes we hate him. We have a love-hate relationship with him. You just can't continue that. But you don't hate him in your heart. You know, look what you do. You rebuke him, and you do it with a meek and gentle spirit. But ladies, you don't allow that bitterness. I'm totally getting off track here, but you don't allow that bitterness to stay in your heart. You surely rebuke your neighbor. Don't allow sin upon him. That's even your husband. Now here's the royal law, verse 18. You shall not avenge nor bear a grudge against the children of your people, but here's the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Isn't that the loving thing to do to confront sometimes? It's the hard thing to do, but it is the loving thing to do. 
Ladies, Jesus even says the same thing in the New Testament. Turn over to Mark. That's the Old Testament royal law, but the New Testament is the same royal law, the law that is supreme, the law that is kingly. Mark chapter 12. In fact, it's interesting, the Tuesday before the Friday that Jesus was crucified, a lawyer came to him and said, which is the greatest commandment? And here Christ answers him. Mark 12, beginning in verse 28. One of the scribes came, he heard him reasoning together, perceived that he'd answered them well. He said, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, Well, Master, you have said the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no man after that dared to ask him any more questions. I guess not. (laughs) I don't think I would either. Ladies, from the very lips of our Lord, he says, if we love our neighbor, we fulfill the whole law. Have you ever thought about that? Think about it carefully. Think about the Ten Commandments. If you love God, you will not put any other gods before him, right? If you love God, you won't make an idol. If you love God, you will not take his name in vain. If you love God, you will remember to keep the Sabbath holy, right? If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will honor your father and your mother. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will not murder. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you would not commit adultery. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will not steal. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will not give false testimony. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will not covet. Isn't that what Jesus has said? All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul even said it. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Galatians 5, 14. And James says the same thing. If you fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. James 2, 8. You do well. Now, let's talk about what the royal law actually means. What does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself? Well, the word for love here is agape. It's a word we've had before, so we don't, it's not, we don't need a lot of explanation. It's not that warm, gushy, mushy feeling that Carlene has for her boyfriend. You know, it's not that phileo love, that tender affection or that Betsy now has for Dawn. You know, it's that gushy, mushy, the, the worldly kind of love. Not that it's bad, it's good. But it's fickle, isn't it? That kind of love is fickle. Agape love is very different. It places the needs of others above our own. We'll ask Betsy in five years how that is, how that agape love is. You know, that's where the rubber meets the road. Agape love, ladies, utterly incompatible with showing partiality. You know why? Because it seeks only to further its own selfish goals if you do not have agape love. Now, you might say, well, who's the neighbor here? Well, it's not your next door neighbor. It can be anyone. You know how Jesus defined neighbor? 
He defined our neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember the travel that fell among thieves and then the Levite came by and the priest came by and ignored him. They kind of like, you know, the, the guy in James, you know, you sit over there. They completely walked on the other side of the street. Who was the one that showed mercy? An enemy, the good Samaritan. That was his neighbor. Ladies, James then completes the sentence by telling them that if they love their neighbors as themselves, they do well. The Greek word here is excellent. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you do excellent. You are doing an excellent thing. Ladies, if you treat people according to their true worth, not just their net value, you do well. If you don't judge others by their clothes, by the color of their skin, you are doing excellent. Now, I doubt any of you this evening have any trouble loving yourself. Do any of you have trouble loving yourselves? No, I don't. We all love ourselves way too much, right? But do you love yourself as much as you love others? You know, I was thinking that today. I have very little time at home anymore by myself. My husband works at home, and I work at home. So when I'm traveling and I come home, I always like time alone, which I don't get anymore. And he had to, he went to Poto today to visit a prisoner. And I was like, oh, I get all day by myself, you know, to work in the house. And at 2.30, he shows up like, 2.30, what are you back? And that's just the self-love. I love myself. I wanted my time alone. I wanted to have alone sanctification time. I wasn't thinking of my husband that needed to rest before he came to teach tonight. We all love ourselves. But do we love others as much as we love ourselves? Was I thinking of my husband? No, I was thinking of myself. I wasn't thinking of him. Jesus says, greater love than, has no end than this, than a man, what, laid down his life for his friends. And guess what the Greek word for friend is? Neighbor. Neighbor. Ladies, James is commanding here we should measure our love towards others by the measure of love we have for ourselves. So James realizes some were fulfilling the royal law, but he also realizes some were not, which explains why he includes the next thought in verse 9. And here we see the character of the rebellious. They are lawbreakers. Notice what he says in verse 9. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, it's interesting, he's got the word but. That's a sharp contrast from those who are fulfilling the royal law. They love their neighbor as their self. But, on the contrast, if you show partiality, you commit sin. I don't know how much plainer you can make that. You commit sin. It's interesting, if you show partiality, is in the tense, the Greek tense, that these people were continually doing it all the time, practicing partiality. Ladies, we all show partiality. As I was saying while I go on my prayer, the Lord showed me someone this week on that homework question, there's someone you tend to avoid, and somebody came to my mind just like that. Yeah, there is someone I tend to avoid, and I am showing partiality. It's, it's one thing to stumble in that occasionally. It's one thing to habitually show partiality that's what that's the greek tense here if you continually ongoing showing partiality you commit sin what is sin deliberate premeditated action it's a decision on your part to continue you come to church and you go you know i don't really like that person too well or boy she smells or i don't like her perfume so i'm gonna 
stay away from her. Sin is missing the mark, being disobedient to the will of God. Secondly, if you show partiality, notice what James says. Not only do you commit sin, but you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. What law is he talking about? Well, it's the Mosaic law that we just talked about, the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself. Then you have broken that law. He says, you've not only sinned, you're convicted as a transgressor. You might say, what is that? Somebody who transgresses is one who's guilty of passing over a forbidden boundary. Have you ever seen a sign that says, don't trespass? And what do we want to do? I want to do it. In fact, when my mother was still living, she broke her. She was at Wendy's. She loved to pick up money. And so she'd walk the parking lots, and she was um, my mother. She loved to get money, and now I'm doing it in her name. But anyway... She picked up some coins, and she fell and broke her tooth. And I said, Mother, she said, I, I crossed over the caution line, the yellow caution line. where they were. I said, Mother, why would you do that? You're not supposed to trespass. But we want to trespass, don't we? He says, you shouldn't trespass, and so we do. Trespassing is interesting. It's going beyond what we are allowed, and yet sin means you've fallen short. One says you've fallen short. The other says you've gone too far. Ladies, both are equal violation of God's holy standard, whether you sin or whether you trespass. Showing partiality is sin. It's a transgression of the law. In fact, James goes on to tell his readers exactly that. If you show partiality, you're convicted of breaking the whole law. Notice what he says. Four, in verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's guilty of all. The whoever there is universal, ladies, it doesn't matter. God is not a respecter of persons, right? He's not going to show partiality in judgment. So it doesn't matter if you're a pastor's wife. It doesn't matter if you're doing the taping. It doesn't matter if you're doing the videoing. It doesn't matter if you're doing the music. It doesn't matter if you brought the refreshments. It doesn't matter who you are. If you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, James says you're guilty of all. The word offend here means to trip, to stumble, you're guilty. Now, this doesn't mean that you're guilty of violating every law in the scriptures. But it does mean this. You have violated the law of God. For example, am I going to tell myself? Maybe I will. If you break the speed limit, you've broken the law. Now, this week, I confess, at 1.30, when I wanted to get home Saturday night, I didn't know, I thought we were still in the 75 zone, and we weren't. We came into Tulsa, and we were in the 65 zone. And not only did I get stopped, but I was also going through the Pike Pass, and instead of being on one side of the road, I was in the middle. I was so tired, I was seeing, you know, like, we just have to get home. It was 1.30 in the morning, and I got pulled over. And he said, ma'am, do you realize you're going 80 and a 65? And I said, no, I did not. I thought it was, he said, not only that, but your Pike Pass violation went off because you're not supposed to go down the middle lane when you're going through the Pike Pass. Well, I didn't know that. I broke the law. And he was gracious enough. Doug said, what is it about women? They never give them tickets. He didn't give me a ticket. But I broke the law. Now, did I kill somebody? No, I didn't kill anybody. But I broke the law. I broke the law. We do the same thing in the spiritual realm, don't we? Ladies, our obedience to God's will cannot be on a selective basis. You know, we can't choose. You know, I like I like this one verse. You know, I will, I'll obey this. But this submission one to my husband, ain't no way I'm doing that one. 
I'm not going to submit. You can't, it's not a spiritual smorgasbord, you know. When we go to the salad bar, I took my dad to soup and salad the other night, and, you know, it was great. I picked and chose exactly what I wanted to eat, and I had a great time. But you can't do that with God's word. You can't pick and choose what you want to obey. Listen to what Jesus said. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men to do that, don't go break the speed limit, okay? You shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the the audience that James is writing to would understand this. Listen to what they taught. The rabbis taught this in the Torah. If a man performs all the commandments, save one, he is guilty of all and each. To break one precept is to defy God who commanded the whole. So even the Jew understood that. Paul says the same thing, Galatians 3.10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the, under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Ladies, we cannot despise the poor. We cannot show partiality and retain God's favor any more than we can commit murder, commit adultery, and still please him. No way. In fact, James goes on to say that. But before we go on, I do want to say this before we go on to verse 11. James is not saying that every sin carries the same consequences. Okay, I want to make that very clear. Some sins are obviously more heinous in the sight of God than others. In fact, he lists those in Proverbs. You know, seven things are an abomination to God. Some things carry a heavier judgment. For example, I'm going to give you an example. Adultery. Adultery involves not only the person committing it, but the, you know, both parties, and then you have the spouses and you have the children. I thought I was thinking about this with David and Bathsheba. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, there was not only then Uriah got killed, he had Uriah killed on the front lines, and the baby died, and then, you know, his sons rebelled against him. I mean, a whole slew of things happened because David committed adultery. What if David had gone out on the roof and just lusted after Bathsheba? Now, that's bad enough because Jesus equates lust with adultery, but there wouldn't have been all those consequences of his sin. He could have realized he was lusting. Okay, this isn't good. I need to get back in my house, and it would have been over. So James is not saying that every sin carries the same consequences. But sin is sin. In fact, he goes on in verse 11, For he who says do not commit adultery said also do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So the fact that you might kill someone, but yet you don't commit adultery, ladies, is not going to excuse you in a law of court. You've still broken the law, right? And evidently, some of James' readers had some misconceptions, just like maybe some of you do. You think, you know, showing partiality is no big deal. It's not as serious as adultery or murder. You know, maybe I can make up, you know, for obeying some of these other things. Now, you might be asking, as I was asking when I was studying this passage, why does James bring out this one particular law about murder? And you might think i have off my rocker and that I need more rest or something, but turn back to Matthew, because I thought this was kind of interesting. Why didn't he say, now if you do not commit adultery, but you steal? Why does he pick murder here? And I thought it was interesting in light of the sin of partiality. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. 
um, beginning in verse 21. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said by them of old, You shall not kill, and whosoever will kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you, Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever shall say to his brother, Reka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, You fool, you shall be in danger of hell fire. Now think with me just a minute. To call someone Reka or Rack or however you want to pronounce it means you were calling them empty, worthless. Fool means stupid. Silly. In fact, we get our English word moron from this word. And I was thinking about the connection here. When we show partiality to the poor or to someone with a different skin color or to someone who doesn't dress like us or to someone we don't want to be around, aren't we in essence saying, you fool, you're worthless, you moron? We're doing the same thing. I think that's why Christ through James, wrote out that particular sin, murder. You might not commit adultery, but you murder. You're doing it in your heart. Aren't you a fool, you moron? That's what we're saying. Ladies, the sin of favoritism cannot be excused because many times it results in murder in our hearts. Well, James gives us a solemn warning here about how Christians should speak and act in view of judgment. And here we see the last thing, the character of our Redeemer. Ladies, he is merciful to the merciful. The character of our Redeemer, he is merciful to the merciful. Notice what he says in verse 12. So speak and so do as they that will be judged by the law of liberty. It's interesting here we have that same Greek tense. Continue speaking, continue doing as a Christian. So speak, so do continually as those that will be judged by the law of liberty. Practice what you preach, James says. Keep on speaking, keep on acting in reality of the coming judgment. Why? Because you're going to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, ladies, the law of liberty is not the Ten Commandments. It's not even the Mosaic Law. You know what the law of liberty is? Do you remember? We, some of you have slept then, since then. But we had it in chapter 1, verse 25. Do you remember? Whosoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it. We talked about then what it is. It refers to the word of God as found in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is centered on loving others. The law of liberty that has set you free from your sin. Ladies, as Christians, we live under the law of liberty, and it's by that same law of liberty you're going to be judged. Every one of you in this room, there's no partiality in judgment. Every one of you on that day, and I think it's getting sooner and sooner and sooner, maybe today, Pam and I were talking today, why isn't the Lord coming back? I don't know. But one of these days he is, and we're all going to stand before him. Every one of us will appear at the judgment seat of Christ, and our works will be judged. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we might receive the things done in our body according to what we have done, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And you know, even our words are going to be judged. Jesus says, every idle word that men speak, they will give account in the day of judgment. Now that verse scares me to death. That makes me want to put duct tape on my mouth. 
every idle word I speak, I'll give account. And then he says, for by your words, you'll either be justified or condemned. Scary passage. Ladies, our conduct must be motivated by the certainty of judgment. James says we're going to be judged by the law of liberty. Now, I know judgment's not a very popular topic, right? About as popular as hell and sin and everything else. We don't like to hear about it. But it should cultivate holiness in our lives. We will be judged. And we will be judged with the sin of partiality if we have shown that. Well, in verse 13, James explains why the sin of partiality will be punished with special severity. Notice what he says in verse 13. And with this, we close and you're saying, good. For he will have judgment without mercy that has shown no mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. You know what James is saying, ladies? I want you to listen very carefully. This is a pretty scary passage. James is saying, mercy will be held from you if you have shown no mercy. It will be withheld. The unmerciful will not receive mercy. That's a terrifying thought. In fact, a deeper terror, I think, is this. Favoritism and partiality is evidence of an unmerciful spirit. That man, that poor man walked in and he said, you sit over there. You sit there. I don't want anything to do with you. James says that person will receive no mercy. James is saying a life characterized by discrimination and favoritism is a life characterized by a soul that's in jeopardy. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5, 7? Blessed are the merciful for they will obtain mercy. A better paraphrase is this. If you forgive others, God will forgive you. If you don't, he won't. Ladies, God will not call evil good, whether it's unjust favoritism or something else. He's not going to. He's not going to change. He is not partial. You might say, well, what is mercy? Mercy is the outward manifestation of pity and compassion that shows kindness towards others, especially those that are misery in misery, those that are hurting, those that are poor. John MacArthur says this, a person who shows no mercy and compassion for people in need demonstrates that he has never responded to the great mercy of God and as an unredeemed person will receive only strict, unrelieved judgment in eternal hell. The person whose life is characterized by mercy is ready for the day of judgment and will escape all the charges that strict justice might bring against him because by showing mercy to others, he gives genuine evidence of having received God's mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will obtain mercy. And then James ends, I think, with an upside down to this verse. Notice what he said. Mercy triumphs or rejoices over judgment. Ladies, there is no fear in judgment. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has punishment. Having received God's mercy, you and I, in that day, and I'm thankful that we have that mercy, we will be able to stand in that judgment day that is going to be, otherwise would be overwhelming to us. Because every one of us in this room deserve hell. And yet God had mercy on us and saved us. One man said, the merciful man, the man who showed mercy toward his fellow man down here on earth, when he appears before the judgment seat, he won't be afraid of his own sin because he will have the mercy that he consistently and generously manifested to others. The mercy that he showed down here will be a cause for boasting up there. Mercy rejoices, triumphs 
over judgment. Ladies, mercy will appear to gain a victory in judgment. Why? Because if we got what we deserve, we all go to hell, right? But even though it never triumphs at the expense of justice, mercy pleads for us for our salvation and ultimately prevails, and I am very glad for that. Well, what's the character of the rich? They're oppressive and they're blasphemous. What's the character of the redeemed? They love others in need. What's the character of the rebellious? They're lawbreakers. And the character of our Redeemer, he's merciful to the merciful. Now, ladies, every one of us in this room can fool each other. I can fool you and you can fool me by saying a few religious words, by quoting your verse here in a minute. We can give a proper Christian testimony. We can deliver it with conviction. Does that mean we are saved? According to what James is saying in the context tonight, genuine faith is not indicated by avoiding the big sins like murder and adultery, but it is by how we treat our neighbor. Being merciful towards others is a sign that you're genuinely saved. Where is your heart tonight in this matter? As we enter into this break of Christmas, Thanksgiving, we have numerous opportunities to show mercy, to put into practice these verses. Everyone around us is acting selfishly, greedy. Why not show mercy to someone this season who is suffering with a disease? Maybe someone you know that has cancer, AIDS. I just talked to a friend who got back from India. She went to a leper colony. Why not show mercy to someone who is of a different race than you? Maybe a different social status or a different denomination. Why not determine in 2009 that you're going to work on a friendship with someone who's different than you? Maybe someone who's different socially or different racially. I think some of us in this room, including myself, need to show mercy right in our own homes, right? Towards our husband, maybe your children, What about the elderly? Maybe you know an elderly person who needs assistance with buying their groceries, putting their Christmas tree up. I think one of the biggest opportunities we have is to be merciful towards those who don't know Christ. Ladies, we have a wonderful opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest act of mercy you can show. I will encourage you not to be like the Pharisees who allowed the external trappings of their religion to blind them to the misery of others. Remember what Jesus said about them? You follow the letter of the law. I mean, they did everything right. But you've omitted the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Ladies, I pray that you will choose to be blessed by God, for blessed are the merciful, for they and they alone will obtain mercy on that day. Let's pray together. Father, I would pray again that you would help us in this area because I think that we are so busy with our families and that's a good thing, but Lord, we get so involved in our own little world that we forget that there are sufferings around us. Even in our neighborhood, we have people that are hurting. And um, just yesterday, I found out about a man in my neighborhood around the corner that had been killed. I didn't even know about it. And Lord, there's so many opportunities that we have to show mercy to those who need mercy. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see those areas and that we would be willing to do that. 
I pray that if there's any in this room that are continuing to show partiality after these two lessons we've had, that, Lord, you would break their will and their spirit, cause them to turn away from that wicked sin. And, Lord, I do thank you for the way, James, in this this thought that mercy triumphs over judgment. And, Lord, that because of your mercy, that on that day we will we will be able to stand before you because we know that all of us in this room are sinners. And apart from your grace and your mercy, we would not be able to stand on that day. I thank you for our salvation. I thank you for Christ. I thank you for what he's done for each of us. I thank you for the time to follow. I thank you for these precious sisters in Christ. Amen.